Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Hello and welcome back to the Forma podcast from the Circe Institute Podcast Network a podcast about the intersection of classical thoughts and contemporary culture, and also the audio companion to form a journal. I'm Heidi White. In this episode, I spoke with Dr. Gregory Hillis, who is a professor of theology at Bellarmine University in Kentucky. Dr. Hillis is a historical theologian with particular expertise in the patristic period. His interests also include Christian spirituality and ecclesiology, sacramental theology. So some really important theological contemplations come from this brilliant man. And Dr. Hillis is also an expert and a scholar of the works of Thomas Merton. I was eager to talk to Dr. Hillis about Thomas Merton, who was one of the most interesting figures in the 20th century spiritual scene. (laughs) If there is such a thing as a spiritual scene... Thomas Merton was a convert to Christianity who became a Trappist monk and a social advocate and activist. He lived in the Abbey of Gethsemane, which is a monastery not far from Bellarmine University in Kentucky. And in fact, Dr. Hillis studies Thomas Merton at the Thomas Merton Center. And I wanted to hear more about his research and his discoveries on Merton, whom I find to be one of the most enigmatic and compelling Christian scholars, mystics, and advocates of the 20th century. For those of you who are subscribers to Form a Journal, you will recognize some of this conversation between Dr. Hillis and me. You may have read some excerpts in written form in the spring edition of the journal. And for those who are not subscribers, log on to www.formajournal.com to get your copy. So without further ado, here is my conversation with the remarkable Dr. Gregory Hillis. Greg, thank you so much for being here. We had, you and I went back and forth quite a bit trying to find the right time. Both of us were traveling and dealing with stuff. So thanks for hanging in there and being on the Forma podcast. Absolutely. All right. So you are a Thomas Merton scholar. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm so intrigued by that. I love Thomas Merton's writings. Um, I'll probably mention a little bit later how I came to know him and love him. But I'm curious first about you. Tell us about your personal interest and love for Thomas Merton. How did that develop? It developed when I was 23. Um, I was doing doing an undergraduate degree. I just got married. Uh, Kim and I married fairly young. And uh, I didn't have anything to read over Christmas holidays. And I decided to pick up something that was on my shelf already. It was a copy of The Seven Story Mountain. I didn't know anything about the book or anything like that, but I read it. And, um, you know, I I have different feelings about the book now, but at the time it was an incredibly important text for me because it was about this guy who was about my age, um, not having any idea what he was going to do with his life and having sort of a crisis of vocation. And at the time, 
you know, I really didn't know what I was going to do with my life and I was having a crisis of vocation. And <laughs> so, you know, it, it, I just, you know, although I knew that I wasn't going to have the same resolution as he did, you know, he became a monk um, and I was married. Uh, I just felt this incredible relief when he finally gets a resolution to his crisis. And I remember um, I just started, after I read that, I just started reading everything I could of his. Um, and I particularly started reading his journals. Um, the school where I went, the University of Waterloo, had a Merton scholar there named Michael Higgins. And um, and I talked to him a little bit, and I went to some of his lectures. And uh, I just became really interested in him. And, um, and then that interest, it didn't die off. I just started studying other things and I did my master's and my PhD in early Christianity. And, and then this job came up at Bellarmine University, um, in 2008. And I remember being really excited about it because, uh, I knew that Bellarmine University had the Thomas Merton Center. Uh -huh. And that's the official repository of his literary estate. It's what he set up um, before he died. And so when I came down here for an interview, I um, I made sure to spend some time in the Merton Center and all that stuff. And so it, it uh, really, since I got here, I've been cultivating um, not just a personal interest, but a, a scholarly interest as well. So tell us, tell us then how that came to be. How did this go from personal interest to a professional vocation? Well, I, as I mentioned, I, I did study early Christianity and I, I did my master's thesis on Augustine and then mm. I did my um, doctoral work on Cyril of Alexandria. And um, I spent the first few years while I was here at Bellarmine um, writing on Cyril of Alexandria and I actually just had something... Um, published about Cyril uh, recently. Um, but it's not that I lost interest in him. It's more that um, I just started gaining more interest in the kind of ways in which Merton was able to speak to our contemporary circumstances. Uh -huh. um, and, and particularly uh, what he had to say about dialogue, um, what he had to say about nonviolence. Um, and also about the contemplative life, all those things I was really interested in. And so um, I haven't given up on early Christianity, but, um, you know, essentially it prepared me fairly well to study Merton and, and, uh, and to write on him. Wow. What, I mean, you are, you are living your best life, Greg. <laughs> I love hearing this. Well, I remember, you know, the, the interesting thing, I mean, um, this is public knowledge, so it's not like I'm sharing a secret or anything like that, but when I was 25, I think, um, you know, I got, I was so infatuated with Merton that I ended up getting a tattoo of a drawing that he did on my shoulder. <laughs> and, um, and I, and, and, you know, so it's a bit surreal for me now to, I mean, I'm sitting in my office now and the, everything that really Merton ever wrote is about 50 feet away from me huh. in, the, in the archives. And, um, and I'm able to go down to the monastery and I, I know, uh, a number of the monks who, who knew Merton. Oh. Um, and there was a time when, uh, my very first trip down to the Abbey of Gethsemane, one of my, uh, colleagues took me down there and I met brother Patrick Hart, who was Merton's secretary when, mm. um, uh, in the last uh, few years of Merton's life. And I remember just being like, wow, I can't believe I'm like meeting this guy who knew Merton and um 
And he asked me sort of what I was interested in and then suggested that he had a book that maybe I, I could review for Cistercian Studies Quarterly. And so the next the next week, I get this package in the mail, and it's from the Abbey of Gethsemane. And wow. I mean, I, I cut it out, and I put it in my journal. Right? <laughs> I know. The, the things that scholarly people geek out about are just, yeah. like, the, that's it, right? You're like, I have arrived. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty cool. That's amazing. Okay, so as an early patristic scholar, uh, do you see connections between the writings of the early church fathers and the teachings of Merton? Yes. So Merton um, was immersed in the patristic period. I mean, he was incredibly gifted as a linguist, and so he was able to read Greek and Latin and um, and so read early Christian writers um, voraciously. And so if you read his journals, for example, there's just filled with references to Gregory of Nyssa, to Gregory of Nazianzus, to Augustine, to, mm-hmm. to Tertullian, um, to all these important figures. And um, and so he was, uh, I mean, he was interested in medieval thinkers as well and, and really shaped by Thomas Aquinas. But there was something about the patristic period that, um, that really was important to him. And mm-hmm. so to understand Merton, um, you have to understand the kind of atmosphere out of which he um, wrote, uh, which was one, you know, surrounded by these writers, you know, mm. um, both, uh, both literally in terms of those books that, you know, that he was surrounded by, but also, um, he, he, he sort of shared their theological imagination. Hmm. Wow. So I'm, I'm really interested in that, particularly in light of what you mentioned earlier, Merton's social consciousness. Mm-hmm. Um, and he is, he is beloved for that. And maybe it's, I mean, he's, he's very well known in contemporary culture for, for many things amongst thoughtful Christians, but that may be the thing that he's most known for. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so how, first of all, let's start out with this. How are Merton's, how, how are his life and his teachings relevant today uh, in, in this troubled cultural moment, what he has to say about the social consciousness? And then I kind of want to dig into that connection between the past as well. But let's start with that. Sure. So his writings on um, social issues like war and race and whatnot, um, the thing that I always emphasize with my students is that that's not really, you know, he, he didn't start writing about that until the late 50s, you know, and then into the 1960s, but um, it wasn't a departure for him. So, mm-hmm. you know, he spent all of his, or a lot of his time writing um, before that on prayer and contemplation. And um, the thing that he emphasizes is not something that is reserved only for, for those who have devoted their lives to this. But that is possible for all people to experience this kind of contemplation. And in fact, what he comes to the conclusion of is that real peace, the kind of peace for which he ends up advocating and the kind of um, justice that he sees needing to take place uh, racially in this country, he sees as intricately um, interwoven with the kind of contemplative vision that he talks about. So. Mm. Part of our problem, he says, is that we don't understand who we really are, huh. and we don't understand who other people really are. And in order, in order to see what he calls the true self, we have to spend time in silence, 
we have to be open to understanding who we really are and be open to the transforming um, power of God. And mm-hmm. once we can do that, then we can start interacting with people in a way that um, is in accord with the kind of dignity and beauty that they all have. Hmm. And so his social vision is one that's really intertwined with his contemplative vision. Right. Now, so that's one way. But but when he starts talking about social issues, um, you know, obviously I think his, his writings on war um, and on nonviolence are important, um, not just because we're in a time that is no less violent than when he than than when he was writing i mean there are some there are some senses in which maybe it's a bit dated i mean he's um there are people in the united states calling for a first strike against russia and um you know to actually use nuclear um weapons against our enemies um but we're still living in a you know military industrial complex and we still all those nuclear weapons are still around and there certainly is an understanding um, that he provides about the, what the nature of violence is mm-hmm. and why it is that we need to overcome it. Mm-hmm. And then the, the aspect of his writings, and, and I'm focusing a lot of attention on that right now in my work, is, um, it, it is one important aspect that often gets neglected is his writings on racism. Mm-hmm. And it's fascinating. You know, here he is, this white monk in the woods of Kentucky, and uh, in 1963, he starts, it's really after reading the, um, a couple of books by the civil rights uh, activist, James Baldwin. Yeah. He, he just starts writing these incredibly trenchant and important essays about the problem of racism. And his most important one there is, uh, is one called Letters to a White Liberal. Hmm. And that one uh, kind of put him on the map. Um, especially with civil rights activists, um, like Representative John Lewis, for example, who is, uh, you know, he was one of the leaders uh, crossing the bridge at Selma uh, um, in this, during the civil rights movement. He's on record as, as saying that he had two books in his backpack while crossing the bridge. One was a book of political science and the other was a book by Merton. Mm. Um, and so uh, white Catholics and white folk don't generally know, you know, that uh, of Merton's, um, record on this, uh, but black Catholics and black civil rights leaders know Merton pretty well. Mm. And that's kind of something that I'm focusing on these days. Wow. That is exciting research. I look forward to connecting more with that. Um, so my first introduction to Merton, I was 34 years old and I remember I was it's funny, similar to you, you described having nothing to read. So you picked up Merton's Seven Story yeah. Mountain. I was in England. My husband was working on a um, RAF base in the Yorkshire Moors. And uh, so on the weekends, we would travel with our kids. We had uh, little kids. And mm-hmm. um, so I had picked up Merton's Seven Story Mountain from a used <laughs> bookstore in Whitby, England. Um, and just, I was intrigued by the title. And so, uh, and I'd kind of vaguely heard about Thomas Martin. You know, everyone's heard of his name, but mm-hmm. so I picked it up and I think it was like three pounds. And, um, and I took it with me and we went on a train to Durham to go see the cathedral. And I was in Durham Cathedral uh, and it was, 
I think even song was happening on mm-hmm. the other side of the cathedral. And the, um, have you ever been there? Have you been to? I've that? never been, but I've been to England, but I've never been to the Durham. So Durham is, it's beautiful, but it's medieval. So it's Mm -hmm. not Gothic. So it's Mm -hmm. very dark and it has kind of this cave-like feel to it. And, um, and it somehow escaped Cromwell. Nobody hmm. knows how. Like it was just not damaged at all. So it's completely intact. Um, and, but it's not necessarily beautiful because it's not yeah. gothic. It's just very dark. But it, it, because of that, it has this solemnity to it. So, um, and it has, of like all cathedrals do, a graveyard very close. And mm-hmm. so um, I remember standing in this cathedral and just being overwhelmed by thinking that I was in a place where the same worship had been kept for 1,100 years Mm-hmm. And this was, and I was happened to be there. I, I was so overwhelmed by that. And then I went out and I leaned against a gravestone and I started reading Thomas Merton for the first time. <laughs> and, um, and I didn't know what I was getting into. And um, that was a, I mean, a turning point in my spiritual life, those two experiences together. And, and, and as I was reading Merton, I was the originality of it, so the connections that he makes between very old, old, old ideas, yep. his own soul and the political climate, the existing culture around him are just so profound. Yeah. To him, they're all the same thing. That's what I saw. Yeah. That there's, they're not, it is no different to think about the psychology of the soul, the state of political discourse, and the universal narrative of mm-hmm. our faith. Yeah. And so, um, it kind of, can you talk a little bit about that? I know I'm making a statement, but you're the scholar. What is it about his thinking that connects kind of those, those, all of those things? And, um, and is, that, is that something that you see in his writing as well? Yeah, so uh, I'll give you a, a sort of concrete example that I think helps to understand why his uh, grounding in the past helps him to be able to address particular issues in the present. And mm. um, one is when he talks about the importance of dialogue. Mm. And in the Catholic Church, you know, the uh, the notion of dialogue really starts to be emphasized after the Second Vatican Council, and we start talking about the importance of dialogue and whatnot. And there are still many um, people, many Catholics, who are, who are quite wary of what does dialogue mean, and um, does dialogue mean sort of selling the farm um, mm, in order to right. reach some sort of um, compromise or some sort. And Merton didn't view dialogue in this way. Instead, um, what's interesting is, is he goes back um, to uh, patristic writers, uh, but also uh, medieval writers like Thomas Aquinas. And through um, the, the Catholic philosopher Joseph Pieper, he mm-hmm. ends up talking about the, uh, how it is that the kind of dialogue he is talking about is precisely the kind of dialogue that Thomas Aquinas engaged in. Hmm. Um, so it was the dialogue that, uh, involved the kind of humility that was willing to listen completely and totally to the other person, um, 
in Thomas Aquinas's case, it was the ability to listen and to understand the arguments presented by um, people with whom he didn't agree. Um, Or sometimes it involved appropriating uh, the ideas of people who uh, other people didn't agree with, such as Aristotle, Hmm. right? And um, and and Merton basically said, no. What you know, this is this is dialogue is not something new. Dialogue is not something novel or weird. Dialogue is actually at the heart of who we are as Roman Catholics and has mm. been since the very beginning. Mm. And and so his notion of dialogue, of course, comes into play in his understanding of war and of uh, really of all his understandings of social uh, when it comes to social issues. And so, like I said, he didn't think he was doing something novel. He thought right. he was just simply doing precisely what the church has always been doing. Hmm. You also mentioned, along with dialogue, how important the, the, the idea of silence is in Merton's mm-hmm. thinking. Can you talk about the relationship between dialogue and silence? Mm-hmm. Well, he, he understood silence um, to be the thing that we are constantly trying to avoid and it's interesting that he writes this I, I talk about this with my students a lot um, because you my students wonder well what could people be distracted by in the 1960s I mean they have phones they've got Netflix they've got you know all these ways to distract themselves and yet here in the 1960s Merton is writing about how we're constantly trying to find ways to distract ourselves and to avoid having to confront the sort of deeper issues about who we are uh, and whatnot. And, and so if anything, silence is more important today than it was in the 1960s even more. But his, his understanding of silence is, uh, uh, involves trying to get below um, or, or to go deeper than the constant um, monologue and conversations that are going on in our minds. And to try and understand that at the very heart of who we are is um, uh, is that we are deeply united with God and also deeply united with one another. And you can only come to that insight, he said, through silence. Hmm. Um, and And once you can come to that insight about who you are and then therefore about who other people are, that's when you can engage in dialogue with them hmm. because you're not instantly dismissing their arguments. You're not instantly dismissing them as um, not worthwhile um, interlocutors, right? You're, right? you're engaging with them as people who have an inherent beauty, right. people who have an inherent dignity. And so, like I said, that, that is at the that is simply uh, at the root of a, a, a theological understanding of humanity. Huh. Yeah. So what, I mean, really what you're describing is silence gives us the, the ability to pay attention to the fact that the other person on the other side of the conversation with whom we may disagree is still the carrier of the Imago Dei. Yes. Yes. And that yeah. that's when true dialogue can begin and yeah, only I mean, then. he has this wonderful um, account. Uh, you probably heard of it. Uh, it's the it, it's it's a you know, it's a recounting of this moment that he has here in Louisville at the corner of Fourth 
and Walnut. It's right downtown. You can go down there. There's a plaque there. And he talks about seeing all these people around him. And Mm -hmm. he says, all of a sudden, I realized that I loved these people, that they were mine and I was theirs. And he gets to the point where he says, um, I I came to understand that, that the, the immense love that God has for them, this love that means that God even becomes a human being uh, for them, for everybody. And he says, if we could only realize that, if we could only see each other as we really are, he says, there'd be no more war, no more hatred, no more um, conflict. He says, and this is the quote, the, the biggest problem is that we would probably fall down and worship each other. Right. Uh, which is, I just love that phrase. I do too. Yes. Mm-hmm. Lewis says that too in the weight of glory. The mm-hmm. same. Yeah. That then if you really saw to this, if you really saw the glory of what it means to be human, yeah, we would be strongly tempted to worship. Yeah. That it does. That reminds me of every time of Aliasha in, um, in Dostoevsky. Yes. Um, that same moment when he lays down in the crossroads of the street and gathers up the dirt and knows who he is and who the, what the world is. Yeah. So, okay. So like you said, this white monk who comes out writing about racism in the 1960s, which is a very loud and chaotic age, just as ours is now, right? So what is, what is the link between the contemplative life and social activism? Most people don't see those things as compatible. How did Merton do that? Uh, well, it really comes out of that vision that he had on the corner of Fourth and Walnut, in uh. which he previously he said, you know, he he admits to having this idea that being in a monastery meant that he was separate from the world, so that he was um, something different than the world and sort of shielded from everything in the world. And and it was through that experience, which I think is the kind of you know, was the fruit of years and years of his own um, silence and his own pursuit of contemplation. It was realizing that he was, in fact, actually united with all these people and that, that his life was intertwined with theirs. And he may be behind the walls of a cloister in a monastery, but what he does has an effect on them just as what they do has an effect on him. and. At that point, um, you know, he has this letter that he, uh, there's a letter we have that he wrote to Dorothy Day, in, um, who was in New York City at the time, in which he says, I just don't think I can only write on prayer and contemplation anymore, huh. right? That, right? That there there has to be something, a contemplative vision of the world that people are lacking and um, and that he can provide and sort of provide a... Uh, help people to under to, to look at the world through a different lens, hmm. and um, and so, it, like I said, that his social his social writings really you just can't divorce them from his um, contemplative vision, and he came to understand that the one necessitates the other. Huh. Right. So for those of us who see parallels between his age and ours. Um, what, what can we, what action can we take outside of our little bubbles? You know, a lot of, a lot of, uh, 
at Forma, we speak to the intersection between classical thought and contemporary mm-hmm. culture. We're very interested in old ideas, but mm-hmm. the problem with old ideas is that sometimes they can stay old, right? Mm-hmm. That's we, we, we get to the point where we're sitting around in a bit of an echo chamber talking about what Aquinas thought or what right. Aristotle said or whether I'm a Platonist and these kinds of things. Mm-hmm. And, and Merton had this, that was never enough for him, mm-hmm. right? And as a monk, that could have been. He could have yep. spent, to your, to your point, his whole life in contemplation, beautiful contemplation, wonderful contemplation. But for him, he got to a point that, as you just pointed out in the letter to Dorothy Day, that was not enough for him. He had to take action. Mm-hmm. So for what, what would you say or what would he say to people who are in the same place as him in this loud and chaotic age that is never silent and always ideological? Well, I, I think the problem is, is that we have, what well, one of the problems is, is that we have so many outlets uh, by which we can articulate our opinions and our ideas and, um, you know, social media, I think is a wonderful thing, Mm -hmm. but it also lends itself to lowest common denominator, um, thinking and argument and, um, and, and leads then to deeper polarization. So the, you know, Merton would look at us right now and see, you know, the increase, Incredible polarization at all levels uh, of American society, racially, economically, religiously, politically. And um, he would say that the role of the person who is, who is interested in the past, the, the kind of person who's studying the past and who wants to understand more thoroughly what happened then in order to understand what happens now, has then a responsibility to articulate arguments that are not only um, coherent, but are also um, open to correction and open to dialogue. And um, and it's that which is sorely lacking right now, right? I mean, we you don't yes. you don't go to di- to to Twitter or to Facebook to dialogue, right? I mean, uh, it does happen, and mm. and um, and I think that it can and should happen, and I think it actually it's this wonderful tool that actually, if it was used the way it it, it could be, you know, it it could actually be a, a, a tool for good, and and to transform us as societies. But um, right now it's being, you know, we use it primarily to sort of dunk on our opponents or to, to sort of, you know, just articulate how wrong somebody else is. Right. And so I think with learning has to come uh, and with study has to come this kind of humility to recognize that you don't have a full purchase on the truth, but also uh, the humility that says, um, you know, I can offer something uh, that might provide a different perspective. Mm, Right. Well, and I would just love what you said about um, his vision for listening and how Mm -hmm. silence, silence leads to being able to see the other person is more than the representation of an idea I disagree with, but a human being with the image of God who, Mm -hmm. um, who has something to offer to me, even if I'm right. Right. And yeah. 
and, and, and even if they're wrong, they have something to offer, right? Yes. Um, and so you always look at somebody with hope rather than mm. condemnation. That's something Merton writes in a in a really important essay that he wrote called Blessed Are the Meek, mm. The Christian Roots of Nonviolence. And he says that nonviolence is, which is really just another word for dialogue for him, is rooted in the idea that uh, that one has hope in the other person. Mm. Um, uh, the hope that says that they're capable of providing something worthwhile to you, but also the hope that recognizes that nobody is beyond redemption. Mm. Okay, what you just said, I want you to riff on that a little bit, that, that to Merton, nonviolence is another word for dialogue. Explain mm-hmm. that. That's important. Well, uh, violence is the ultimate way to, to shut somebody up. And for Merton, violence was not just about um, physical violence. It was the kind of violence that he would see really the kind of polarization of our society he would see as a, a sort of enacting of violence against each other, right? Where, where you look at the other person as if they are um, beneath you, as, mm-hmm. as if they are subhuman. And um, he said, you may not actually be physically violent with somebody, but you are violent with them um, in, in, a, in a way that dismisses their humanity. Right. And... Um, and so for him, you know, he, 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 I don't, I don't, you know, in that, in that uh, essay, he doesn't make that direct connection of nonviolence and dialogue, but that's essentially what ends up happening in, in the essay itself is that, you know, nonviolence involves having to listen, right? If you're only going, you know, he says there's a form of nonviolence that is actually very violent. You can go and protest in such a way as to, make very clear to the other person how wrong they are, mm. right? And he said, if that is what nonviolence is, then that's just as violent as any other thing. Right. But if you, if, you, if you engage in nonviolence in such a way that the other person understands that you are willing to listen, then the doors for transformation are open mm. in a way that they wouldn't be otherwise. That's good. I really like that. So another thing Merton is well known for, um, uh, what I, I think is very deeply misunderstood, and I'd like you to speak to it, uh, to his connection to Eastern mysticism. Mm-hmm. Um, so can you speak to that and how that's been maybe misunderstood by many Christians? Yeah, um, that's what I'm writing about. I'm, I'm working on a book right now about, you know, Merton's Catholicism and um, you know, you don't have to go very far on the internet to find various websites that call into question, you know, whether Merton can be trusted. Was he really a Catholic? Was he really a Christian? These sorts of things. Right. And, um, and a lot of that is rooted in the concerns um, that people have about uh, the study that he was doing of, of uh, particularly Zen Buddhism, um, but also of... Um, Islam, uh, Judaism, you know, these uh, particularly in uh, mystical uh, or their contemplative traditions. And I think that, uh, again, what, what, he, what he is trying to um, do is to work again from the understanding of the basic unity of all humankind, that regardless of race or anything like that or religion or anything, that we are 
first and foremost already won. Um, in fact, that's a, that's a phrase that he uses in Asia on his last trip to, to Asia, where he says, we are already one. We mm-hmm. just don't know it yet. And, and Merton is not, you know, people think maybe he was engaging in this kind of study of Eastern religions uh, in a kind of uh, way that negated his own Christianity. But he writes very clearly against that. He said right. a, di- a dialogue that means, um, you know, syncretism or indifferentism or what he calls a, a sort of facile uh, agreement by which we believe everything by believing nothing. Huh, right. Exactly. Um, he said, he said, that's a, that's a real problem. But um, he said, what we can understand is, yeah, there are huge theological differences between Zen Buddhism and Roman Catholicism, right? We've got, uh, if we, if we begin our dialogue on the level of theology or doctrine, we're not going to get very far because we're, it's literally two different theological imaginations at right. work that, that don't correlate. But he said, I can't deny that the experiences of these contemplatives, of these mystics, is very similar to the kind of experiences that our tradition uh, has with its own mystics and, and contemplatives. So we can have a dialogue about the ways in which we um, share common experiences and so uh, can learn um, more from one another and uh, understand one another more thoroughly. Right. His, his engagement with these other religions was about, not about um, selling his own religion short or um, not that he didn't believe in the truths of his own religion. It was about um, trying to overcome the ways in which we separate each other continually. Right. Well, to go back to the kind of the meat of our conversation, the idea of sitting in silence and listening and seeing the humanity and the image of God yeah. in in these other people yeah. and understanding I mean, them and entering their world. There are these lovely letters that he shares um, that are not, I've, I've read both sets. The, the published letters are just the ones that Merton wrote, mm-hmm. but I've read the ones of this other person. His name is Abdul Aziz. And he's a Muslim from Pakistan. And he was put in contact with Merton through uh, a Christian theologian, uh, uh, Louis Massignon, who was was a Catholic priest, studied Islam, and uh, wrote a great deal about it. And uh, Abdul Aziz writes Merton. The two never met, um, but he basically says, look, I have this, uh, I want to learn more about your own tradition. And I want to tell you a little bit about how I pray and about what is important to me. And it, it starts this incredible correspondence between the two of them wow. where they are uh, um, incredibly intimate in their descriptions of their own spiritual lives with each other. Huh. And at one point, Abdul Aziz uh, writes to Merton and says, well, how do you pray? You know, can you, can you explain it to me? And Merton was kind of cagey about responding to those kind of requests because he thought everybody prayed differently uh-huh. and he didn't think that his own way of praying needed to be the way that everybody else prayed. Right. Uh, but he wrote this letter and he, and he says this to Abdulaziz. He says, you know, I, uh, I never actually write about this. Um, and uh, I want you to know I'm, I'm writing, I'm going to tell you about this as a show of the kind of respect and love that I have for you. 
And he goes and describes what, how he prays. And wow. it's fascinating that the only record we have of that huh. is uh, a letter to a Muslim in Pakistan. Letter to right. a Muslim. That's fascinating yeah. and very and, revealing to his heart, right? And Yeah, and he also says to him, you know, I want you to know that I remember you in my mass. Mm. And he says, and he doesn't just leave it at that. He says, just so you know what that means, it's that's the most important thing that I do as a Catholic uh. priest. And when I remember you at that time, um, there's a real significance to that in my own mind. And of course, he believes uh, a significance uh, uh, in terms of his relationship with God. And, and so, you know, Merton is not, uh, he doesn't shy away from his own identity when he engages in this kind of dialogue. Right. Right. It's that dialogue and the silence mm-hmm. together, um, mm-hmm. and understanding people mm-hmm. and, um, and thus understanding God as yes. their creator. That's right. Hmm. Okay, so we're coming to the end of our time, but I'm so sad about that because I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, this is fascinating um, and convicting, I think. Um, so for our listeners who may not be very familiar with Merton or want to go deeper, what, where, should, where should they start? Well, I always, I get asked that uh, question a lot. And, uh-huh. and I, there are a few places that I suggest. I, I always love his autobiographical stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, that said, I, I don't suggest people start with the seven story mountain. <laughs> like we did. Um, yeah. He, I mean, he's a little bit, he's a little bit heavy handed in that yeah, book. Yeah, that's true. In, in a way that, um, he kind of repudiates later, but he also recognizes it's an important book. Uh, there's a, a really lovely collection of his journal entries, his private journal entries called the intimate Merton. Okay. That I think is a good place to start. If you just want to get to know a little bit about who he was. Um, there's also two very good collections of his writings that are worth looking at. One is um, uh, edited by Lawrence Cunningham, who's at um, Notre Dame, and it's called Thomas Merton's Spiritual Master: The Essential Writings. And in that right, and, and in that uh, book, what you have are a lot of his writings on prayer and contemplation, as well as his writings about Eastern religions, that sort of thing. Okay. And then there's a really good, even smaller collection called uh, Thomas Merton Essential Writings. Okay. And it's, it's edited by Christine Bochin, and it's published by Orbis Books. And um, that just has, I think it's one of the best collections out there. Uh, and it has really everything. And from there, you'd be able to find the sort of writings that you are most interested in and sort of go from there. Okay, that's really helpful. And then what about you, Greg? Where can our, how can our listeners find you and your work that you're doing? Uh, well, I'm, I'm generally, Twitter is the main thing that I'll use. So I'm at Greg. You're pretty great on, on Twitter, by the way. I, you're, <laughs> oh, you're funny. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, not, not everybody loves me on Twitter, but yeah. Um, yeah. That's because so they haven't internalized the silence and the dialogue <laughs> lessons. <yet>, so <laughs> so I, I try to put everything that I'm up to, you know, I'm doing a lecture later this month at uh, University of Kentucky on Merton and civil rights and um, that. So I'm at Gregory K. Hillis there. Okay. And that's probably the easiest way. 
All right. That's fabulous. Thank you so much for being on the Forma podcast and talking to me about this and passing on your knowledge and passion of one of the great thinkers and activists of uh, the 20th century. So thank you so much. Of course. Thank you. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 